Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And also by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware plus more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads our users are located. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Microsoft's Ignite conference was held this week, and usually when there's a large tech conference, I cover my personal highlights from the announcements made in the course of the event as the top story for the week. I feel like this time I'll part with my own tradition. To me, the most important enterprise IT story this week was the story covering the tragic death of a woman in Dusseldorf, Germany, who was brought to a hospital with a medical emergency only to be turned away as the hospital's computer system was infected with ransomware, leaving them unable to accept new patients. The lady was redirected to another hospital but sadly died on the hour-long journey. The register reports that it's likely the attackers didn't necessarily target the hospital and when they found out they hit a hospital, they provided authorities with decryption keys. After providing the decryption keys, the attacker stopped responding and even with the decryption keys, the ransomware was widespread enough that decrypting is a process that will take several days. Multiple news outlets have suggested the vulnerability in question was related to the serious Citrix bug that I covered on the podcast earlier this year. Some cyber gangs have vowed not to attack hospitals, and in this case it seems like the attackers did not realize it was a hospital that they were hitting. That will of course be no comfort to the victim's family, and a manslaughter investigation has been launched. As the registers suggest in their article, the likely perpetrators are most likely outside Germany, so extradition and prosecution may be unlikely. Chances of the family of the victim actually listening to this podcast are pretty slim, but, you know, just in case anyone knows the victim, I'd just like to give my condolences. I've spent about half of my career working in healthcare IT, I'm sure the IT team are probably kicking themselves too if they fail to mitigate against the vulnerability that was disclosed last year or possibly did try to mitigate but missed an appliance or something like that. Just overall, it's tragic all around. There's going to be a lot of very upset people. Now, hopefully on to more hopeful news. I'd like to share some of my highlights from the Microsoft Ignite announcements. At Ignite, Microsoft announced Azure Communication Services, which they claim is the first fully managed communication platform offering from a major cloud provider. Now, I think that could be disputed and some are claiming that you can get equivalent services in AWS. But I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I don't really know what's available in AWS or even other public cloud platforms in terms of communication services. 
In a Microsoft pitch statement, they said, quote, Azure Communication Services is built natively on top of a global reliable cloud, Azure. Businesses can confidently build and deploy on the same low-latency global communication network used by Microsoft Teams to support over 5 billion meeting minutes in a single day. End quote. The company also notes that its services are encrypted to meet HIPAA and GDPR standards. TechCrunch.com reports that there's a voice and video calling and the ability to shift between voice and video calling. And there's also support for chat. And starting in October, users will be able to send text messages. Microsoft says developers will be able to send these to users anywhere, with Microsoft positioning itself as a global service. Provisioning phone numbers, too, is part of the services, and developers will be able to provision for those inbound and outbound calls, port existing numbers, request new ones, and most importantly for contact center users, integrate them with existing on-premises equipment and carrier networks. In their article, TechCrunch.com compared the new service to Twilio, which if you listen to the podcast regularly, you may be aware that I recently covered a news story that Twilio was being adopted by EHR vendor Epic as part of their telemedicine integration. So I think that's an interesting use case and why Azure Communication Services may appeal to developers and certain vendors. Windows Virtual Desktop also had some announcements about upcoming enhancements due at the end of the year. They announced Microsoft Endpoint Manager integration, which will bring enrollment for WVD virtual machines that are hybrid Azure Active Directory domain joined with Microsoft Intune and manage them in the Microsoft Endpoint Manager Admin Center the same way as physical devices. I'll be very interested to try this out. One of the challenges with SCCM in the past on non-persistent virtual desktops was how slow it was at delivering applications after a user has logged in. Also announced was the fact that MSIX AppAttach will be made available through the Azure Portal and Azure Resource Manager, or ARM. That's becoming too frequent of an abbreviation in enterprise IT. Something called Azure Monitor Workbook was also announced, which promises to allow you to detect and alert on issues that may present in your WVD. I didn't find too much detail on this one other than some of the metrics it shows in some of the screenshots and dashboards that were presented. Things like connection issues, host issues, and some useful monthly usage information too. It'll be interesting to see how comprehensive this is, as there are already some really great monitoring products and vendors that are partners for WVD. There are also some WVD security-related announcements, such as their screen capture protection feature, which reads like a little bit of a DRM protection on screen captures. So they say that one common attack vector with remote sessions is screen capturing. And to protect your sensitive information, Microsoft are adding the option to disable screen capture for your remote apps and desktops on all the supported WVD clients. They also announced Direct RDP to Session Host, 
that they're introducing a new capability that could be set at a host pool level and will take into account the type of network you are connecting from and when possible establish a direct peer-to-peer -peer UDP connection to the session host rather than over the internal Windows Virtual Desktop gateways. And by eliminating the intermediate hops and using a more efficient connection over a trusted network, you get a secure, optimized experience with lesser connection latency and better performance. So that all sounds good. And from a support perspective, for getting support that is, Windows Virtual Desktop is now supported as part of the fast track for Azure. I also noticed that Tom Hickling shared a little tidbit on his Twitter timeline showing an upcoming enhancement that is an option to have a desktop automatically power on, on connect. So the way I interpret that is if you launch a desktop and the VM happens to be powered off or maybe all the VMs happen to be powered off, it will power on the VM that you're trying to broker to or connect to. In my experience, when other vendors or other tools were doing that with public cloud services, it's cool because it actually initiates the power on and it helps your organization save some money and ensures that even if you power off all your desktops, because usually nobody's working between set hours, that if someone does try to work, it's able to power it on for them on demand. But the counter side is because it has to power on the VM and uh, initialize and all that stuff, for the end user, it's going to be a much slower launch than if the VM is already powered on. But hey, swings and roundabouts, it's better than not having that option. They also announced something called the Microsoft Tunnel Gateway, which is a solution that allows Microsoft Intune enrolled iOS and Android devices to access on-premises apps and resources. Tunnel is fully integrated with the Microsoft 365 Cloud and takes advantage of single sign-on capabilities using Azure Active Directory authentication from the client to Tunnel Gateway. Conditional access policies which are integrated into the tunnel provide an additional layer of security for your network. And by applying these policies, you can restrict network access to just users who are enrolled, compliant, and meet your defined user identity risk requirements. Microsoft consider conditional access integration with Tunnel to be a key part of your zero trust security journey. They state that every organization's network infrastructure is different. Tunnel gateway installation is flexible to meet your unique network requirements. It can be installed on-premises, in your DMZ, or in the cloud. There's a really great quick demo video available that gives a much better idea of how this works and what the benefits are. And this was actually, to me, the biggest new product or feature announced during Ignite. That's just my opinion, but considering the huge work from home surge and people who want to use their iOS devices in particular, I feel like this could give extra flexibility to serving their needs when working remote. And in my opinion, and which I actually blogged about for software too. Most people who are working from home only really need access to their applications. They only need like published applications through something like Citrix virtual apps and desktops or Horizon apps, or possibly if there's SaaS based web apps or even better apps that are available within like the Apple store or Google play or through Intune, of course, if you can 
make those apps available on their iOS or Android device and automatically gives them connectivity to your enterprise organization's backend and allows them to work seamlessly on their device. I think that's pretty cool. That's a step in the right direction. Explisa.co reported that Teams will be getting a new feature that allows you to merge calls, as in merge two calls in progress, bringing together participants from both. It will allow combining two individual calls or one group and one individual, but not two group calls. And it will be compatible with both calls made via PSTN telephone and VoIP. They report that the feature will be added in August 2021, which, wow, they're announcing this one way out. And I guess they suggest that this is a feature that's already available in Skype for Business and is a bit of a bugaboo for those people who are moving from Skype for Business to Teams. So I guess it's good that it's at least on the roadmap and maybe that's why they're announcing it so far in advance to give people that nudge that, hey, we're getting rid of Skype for Business in 2021, but don't worry, we're going to have this feature that you've all been requesting available in Teams before the cutoff. MSPowerUser.com provided a rundown of some of the Microsoft Edge announcements made during Ignite. These include that Microsoft Edge is providing more secure remote work capabilities with two new experiences. One is the use of Mobile Application Management, or MAM, where IT administrators can selectively manage individual work-related apps on a user's device, instead of needing to manage a user's whole device. Based on identity, IT admins can just manage the browsing a user does from their work profile within Microsoft Edge. In addition, Microsoft Edge is the first browser to natively support policies for Microsoft Endpoint Data Loss Prevention a suite of features used to discover and protect sensitive items across Microsoft 365 services. No surprise that their browser will be the first that's able to do that, I guess. The data loss prevention enables customers to manage and control their data when accessed from Edge, which helps prevent accidental disclosure or leaks while on the web. It was also announced that coming soon, IT admins will be able to roll back Microsoft Edge to a previous version, in case deploying a new version inadvertently breaks something within their environment. Some new Microsoft Edge development tools extensions for Visual Studio Code are now generally available. Microsoft also announced that Microsoft Edge on Linux is expected to be available in public preview this October. And as I previously covered on the podcast, WebView 2 will be generally available for C or C++ and .NET by the end of 2020. There were also some MSIX sessions too during the week that included some information on MSIX AppAttach becoming available in Azure DevOps, for example, and some more information on upcoming enhancements and info on features like MSIX Core. To me, there wasn't too much new per se, but further information around roadmap for the product and some of the tweaks and enhancements they've made over the last few months, particularly back in July when they had some major fixes and enhancements. And obviously earlier this year, they started support for services, which was something that was sorely missed in the product before that. Also interesting, I thought, was that they shared some customer reference cases for MSIX 
that's pretty interesting because it seems to me that most enterprise customers who are even maybe using something like AbbV, which can be converted somewhat easily to MSIX, have been holding off so far. Personally, I'm really interested to see what MSIX app attach will look like once it becomes generally available. I'm hoping that it has a really high success rate that makes it appealing to a lot of enterprise customers because we really do need a good application packaging and delivery technology. Somewhat on the consumer end and not that exciting for most of us in enterprise IT, but Microsoft also unveiled an 85-inch Surface Hub S2 device that will cost you about $22,000. Pre-orders for the device are open now, but only in the United States and does support Windows 10 running on the Surface Hub device. Engadget reports that an optional floating wall mount, floor-supported wall mount, or mobile cart are available. So, I guess whatever suits your meeting rooms. It's also supposedly 20% thinner and 30% lighter than its predecessor. So, if you work at some bougie company and you're lucky enough to have these, heads up, it looks like there's an improvement and it's comes in the shape of an 85 inch screen. So those are just some of the highlights that I picked out. There were many other announcements. Microsoft's such a huge company and there's so many different products. I couldn't possibly cover them all and keep the podcast relatively short. But I'll share links to some of the other announcements with this episode and also obviously the announcements that I've covered. And you can find that at fivebytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 143. NVIDIA's RTX 3080 graphics card went on presale this week. Gamers were drooling over the prospect of getting their hands on it, but unfortunately for them, most were unable to buy the product because a group called Bounce Alerts, who provide a service to resellers, set up a bot which instantly ordered most of the stock for themselves. PC Mag reports that over 100 orders were placed using the bot service, some buying dozens of the cards in their order. At the time of this recording, NVIDIA refused to comment and with the nature of the bot service, when more become available on NVIDIA's site, the bots will likely scoop those up too because by design it's waiting for more stock to be added and it's going to automatically book those for the resellers. So until those resellers have all the stock to meet their demand, that bot's just going to keep going and going. So. Unfortunately, unless you're paying a subscription to the bot service, you're probably going to pay over the odds to get one from one of those resellers. Hopefully common sense prevails and NVIDIA put a cap on how many can be bought in a single order. Although that might not help either if they just adjust the bot and do single purchases per order. Anyway, it sucks either way. (laughs) Not really enterprise IT related, but I know NVIDIA is a big player in the enterprise IT space. And I found it pretty interesting. I'm not that much of a gamer, but with such a tight squeeze on computer component manufacturing right now that is being experienced in enterprise IT, I thought this was a pretty interesting story. This week, ControlUp asked people in the community to help them out by filling a short form to help ControlUp understand your most difficult troubleshooting scenarios in Citrix virtual apps. It looks like in return for filling in the survey, if you want to give your email address, they'll hook you up with something, maybe some swag. I didn't really read it. I was just willing to 
fill in the information. But hey, if you want some swag and you're willing to fill in your info, go ahead and I'll share a link with this episode to do that. And while covering some surveys for the community, I should also mention that Citrix also have a survey to gather some product feedback. If you fill in their survey, they will donate $10 to Girls Who Code. Their survey is for Citrix virtual apps and desktops and Citrix workspace. But if you only use one or the other, you can complete the survey just for the one that you use. And you don't have to just be like a Citrix admin or an engineer or like a solutions architect. Even if you're just a user of Citrix, you can fill in the survey and give them the feedback. And it's for a good cause and it only takes about five to seven minutes, so why not? And I'll share a link again with this episode, which is 143 on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. ZDNet have reported that a Russian ransomware gang has been launching attacks exclusively on Russian businesses. At least it appears that the attackers are Russian. It's reported that this is not completely unheard of, but is extremely rare, as there is an unwritten rule within Russian cyber gangs to not attack within Russia. The report doesn't give a lot of info on why they believe the gang is actually Russian, other than saying that phishing campaigns launched as part of the attack are in Russian. It also reported that some in the past launched small-scale attacks on Russian businesses before starting larger-scale international attacks. So I guess watch this space. And speaking of ransomware somewhat, I saw something pretty interesting on Twitter this week. Uh, Twitter handle the 4Changel shared a really interesting find made on Shodan, which I've talked about Shodan quite a bit in the past. I found out about it from Patrick Coble, so shout out Patrick. It is really, really interesting. You could lose hours of your life just looking at things on it that you find. It's a portal into seeing what's publicly exposed online, like web cameras, um, just desktops or servers that have certain ports open that are publicly exposed. It would really make your mind explode at just how many systems are left vulnerable out there. But anyways, this person on Twitter shared that when searching for port 3389, which is the RDP port, obviously, uh, he was searching just within his own little farm town and managed to find RDP open on a machine with a locked user session, and the user session was called Water Plant. Well, if you put two and two together in a small town and the user account is Water Plant... That's a really bad machine and account to potentially be exposed publicly online. But that's the kind of stuff that you find because on some, but not all of the machines that have 3389 open when you go to Shodan, it actually shows a screenshot from that machine. And in this screenshot, that's the user that it showed. Oh boy. And on the topic of vulnerabilities that are very scary... There is now a community tool available for detecting whether or not you are protected against the zero logon domain controller vulnerability that I talked about last week on the podcast. And if you didn't listen on last week's episode of the podcast, I covered the fact that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security recommended that organizations not wait until after the weekend to patch and that this is a critical vulnerability getting a 10 out of 10 on the severity scale, so the highest possible severity rating and well as it turns out that was justified 
as Microsoft have this week confirmed active attacks in the wild. They tweeted, quote, Microsoft is actively tracking threat actor activity using the exploits for CVE-2020-1472, NetLogon EOP vulnerability dubbed ZeroLogon. We have observed attacks where public exploits have been incorporated into attacker playbooks, end quote. So for the love of God, patch if you haven't patched yet. Speaking of patching, just a quick heads up to those of you who home lab with Intel Nooks. After installing September patches, a couple of my devices lost their network adapters. I was able to manually re-add them, but it's obviously not ideal to lose connectivity unexpectedly. Of course, I have to admit I'm running server OS on these, which is not supported on the models that I use, so it's more on me than on Intel. But if you're doing what I am, then just beware when you're patching them this month. There are a lot of different models, so I happen to have three NUCs, and two of them are the same model, and it was the two that were the same model that had the issue. They're quite old now, so unless you use older ones, you might not be affected. My favorite virtualization product, VMware Workstation, just had a new version released, version 16. The release brings containers and Kubernetes support with VCTL and Kind, DirectX 11 and OpenGL 4.1 support, Monster VMs with 128 gigs of RAM, 32 vCPU, 8 terabyte disks, 10 NICs, and 8 gigs of graphics memory. There's Hyper-V support, so you can use Hyper-V, WSL2, Device and Credential Guard, and Workstation at the same time. So that was something that was announced a while back is the side-by-side support of running Hyper-V and VMware Workstation on the same machine, which I don't think was possible until about a year ago. So that was very welcome. And of course, there's a new Dark Mode UI. Dark Mode is what's down with all the kids, yo. (laughs) They've included a Linux Vulkan rendering engine. There's latest operating system support, USB 3.1 device support, sandbox graphics rendering engine, and improved accessibility features. If you've never had the pleasure of using VMware Workstation, you really should. If you rely on stuff like VirtualBox or maybe Virtual PC back in the day, God help you. VMware Workstation, to me at least, is just light years ahead of all those. It really kicks ass. And I've actually been using it in pretty interesting ways in my home lab. I might blog about it at some point. So if that intrigues you and I forget to blog about it, someone please remind me. And I feel like this was a somewhat heavy episode, so on a lighter note to wrap up this week's news, a crazy mystery was solved in Aberhausen, Wales recently. The entire village there was losing its broadband every day at 7am like clockwork. The internet service provider sent out engineers to try and find the problem, but even after replacing the cable for the village, the issues persisted. An engineer went out with a spectrum analyzer to try to find any electrical noise to help pinpoint the possible problem. And sure enough, when he was on his walkabout with the spectrum analyzer, he discovered the culprit. It was an old TV that was found to be emitting a single high-level impulse noise which was causing interference with the service. The owner of the TV, who according to the BBC is very embarrassed by this, 
would turn the television on every morning. The owner promised to stop using the TV, and sure enough, the network has been stable ever since. On reading this, I felt really bad for the owner. If they're relying on an old TV, you know, maybe they just can't afford a new TV, or maybe a new TV is just kind of beyond their comprehension. Or maybe they need the old TV because they watch old VHS tapes or have something that will only connect to an older TV. Hopefully the ISP, who probably makes plenty of money and also employs some tech-savvy people, will help out and buy the owner a newer television and maybe help them out with whatever they required that old TV for if it is because they had some peripherals that they wanted to keep around. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. CitrixIRC.com had a great blog post on using Nutanix files with FSLogix profile containers. This is a lengthy blog post with a lot of images and it's very, very detailed. A lot of organizations use Nutanix for their VDI, so this will be of use to many people, I'm sure. So if you're just kicking the tires on Nutanix for your VDI or maybe you're already using it and you just want to cross notes and maybe you haven't even used FSLogix profile containers but now that Microsoft owns it you're entertaining the idea check out this blog post this week I saw that Mick Pletcher from Mick's IT blog shared some handy PowerShell commandlets for remotely pushing Windows updates leveraging PSExec so this could come in really handy for maybe if you have some machines that just doesn't make sense to use ADRs or deployment packages to push out for your Windows updates and you want to do it on maybe a manual basis but do it remotely via PowerShell, this could be useful for you or hey, maybe if it fails with an automated deployment, if you want to do it via PowerShell commandlet, this could work out. Finally, Helga Klein shared links to the Airbus team's GitHub repo, which appears to be a treasure trove of useful scripts particularly for monitoring. It includes things like a Wireshark plugin to work with event tracing for Windows, which captures network and ETW events within the same tool. There's also a Python 3 parser library for Windows ETL log files, which doesn't have any dependencies and works on both Linux and Windows. There are also many, many more. It's kind of cool when you see some of these larger organizations' GitHub repos to see what they're doing. Obviously, they have a larger budget than some of the smaller organizations, but smaller organizations can still benefit from the work that they're doing by just taking what they share and adapting it for their own needs. Well, that's it for another week. Thank you all so much for listening.